This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I think that if people are concerned about volatility, they should definitely not buy our stock. I am not here to convince you to buy our stock. Um, Do not buy it if volatility is scary. There you go. All right, just a little piece of Elon Musk on the uh, call last night with analysts following their earnings. Some said it was a bit of a bizarre and heated conference call between Mr. Musk and the uh, investment community. Shares of Tesla, by the way, down about six and a quarter percent, two eighty two twenty a share. Let's talk about the company. Dana Hull is with us. Uh, she is a technology reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone in San Francisco, and then uh, we got to take a look at the company's cash burn. So for that, we get the credit picture on Tesla from Joel Levington, senior credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Dana, let me start with you. Uh, you know this company well. You've spent time um, you know, with Elon Musk. Is this just vintage, classic Elon Musk? I would say it was sort of classic Elon Musk, but maybe at a higher level than we are typically used to. Um, I mean, the earnings call was sort of one for the ages. He was, you know, sort of more peevish and combative than is typical. And what was really striking was that he cut off analysts that were asking some pretty serious questions about, you know, cash flow and burn, and then just went to a retail analyst who has a YouTube channel and took like 13 or roughly a dozen questions from from this person. So I think you, you, it was just sort of, it was just very surprising for people, um, you know, to, to, to sort of allow one person to dominate the call like that. Um, and for the analysts who cover the stock and are usually on the earnings call, I think they were a bit taken aback by how bizarre it was. And you're seeing that reflected in both the share price, which began tanking last night, like as soon as Elon started, as soon as Elon cut off the analysts, you saw the shares drop. You're seeing that in the shares today and in a lot of the notes that have come out. I just think he's cranky. Hasn't it been staying up all night trying to get those Model 3s out, Dana? I, you know, I, I don't know what his personal sleep schedule is. He okay. claims that he has been sleeping at the factory, but yeah. he's clearly under a lot of pressure. And what really right. set him off was, you know, people were asking him if he's going to raise equity again. And he said, no, I, I definitely, you know, I, I do not want to do that. Uh, he called the questions from analysts boring. He said, oh, these these calls are so boring. They're killing me. And then he perked up and was very chatty with, with the YouTube questioner who hmm. was sort of asking more long-term visionary product questions, which right. is what Elon really likes to talk about, the, the financial are sort of mundane in his in his view. Yeah, but that's what happens when you're a, a publicly held company. You got to answer these questions. Well, and that's what's really interesting because you know, remember, Elon Musk is also the chief chief executive officer of SpaceX, which right. is a privately held company, and I think he you know, would probably prefer that Tesla was not public. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you're under you're under right. much more of a microscope. Right. Let's bring in uh, Joel Levington who watches the credit picture at Tesla. So their cash burn. Um, how does it look right now for them, Joel? Not so good. And I should say, Carol, uh, for the record, that I do not know uh, uh, Mr. Musk's uh, sleep uh, <laughs> history either. either. But, uh, you know, from a, from a credit standpoint, they burned through over a billion dollars of cash. And that's despite... In the quarter. In the quarter. And that's despite having a $100 million increase in customer deposits added into the cash balance. Uh, so it really was not a, a particularly pretty picture. Uh, they did shave down their CapEx goals uh, for the year, but I still see them being negative 3 
free cash, about a about a billion seven, even after the, uh, the 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 cut in capex. So, I mean, in terms of when you look at the financial picture, didn't he say though that uh, Joel later on in the year that they're going to actually be making some money? Well, that's what he said. Uh, he has said a lot of things, and yeah. some have come true. Uh, when it comes to financial projections for Tesla, they historically have not. Um, and at some point, they may generate cash. But I would say, on average, your typical auto company likes to keep around about 20% liquidity to sales. If you look at uh, 2018 and 2019, they're expected to generate between 20 and $25 billion of sales. So that would put your cash needs or liquidity needs at about 4 to $5 billion. Uh, you're sitting on about... And he's not there, not even close. No, you're on $2.7 billion today. Dana, you know what? It's interesting when we look at this company, um, Tesla, and I wonder, I heard somebody earlier talking about, you know, is this like Amazon? For years, we have been willing to kind of let Jeff Bezos do his thing, even though he wasn't a profitable company and he was spending big time. Is it a fair comparison? Can we do that between Amazon and Tesla, do you think? Well, I think that that long-term investors and, and fans of the company will argue, listen, you, you know, you're talking about the, the cash burn all the time, but what are they investing in? They've got this gigafactory. They're making their own batteries. They're vertically integrated. They've got their own supercharger network. They're building out sales and service. So, I mean, they are spending heavily for future growth. Um, and so I, I guess the Amazon comparison is fair that way. And, you know, Elon said quite clearly on the call, he's like, listen – if the stock is too volatile for you, get out. Like, I am not here to sell you stock. I mean, I'm, he's, you know, so yeah. I thought that that was pretty, and apparently some some shareholders are listening to him today. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. I said to somebody, I bet a lot of CEOs think what Elon Musk said on the call. He just said it. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and it was very Trump-esque in that, you know, he sort of broke the broke the conventions of what you typically yeah. hear on an earnings call. So, right. uh, and he just really, he was he was frank, he was brutal, he was honest, he he, he did not, he let his irritation show, and he broke all the conventions. Right. And, uh, you know, while analysts and, and financial journalists were sort of taking it back, his base of supporters loved it. I mean, right. you know. This is why we like Elon Musk, right? He's, he's doing things differently. Um, Joel, just come on in on what we need to watch for them in the financial picture when it comes to uh, Tesla, because he says that they don't need to go and get, you know, do a cash raise uh, or an equity raise. When you look at it, what do you see? Right. Well, I don't, I think he's right from the standpoint as to they will still have cash at the end of the year, even if they go through the rest of the year and get close to what they're talking about in terms of production. That being said, they are kind of playing a game of chicken with the bondholders and with the credit markets uh, in that they will get very close to, uh, reducing their liquidity to a point where it will be get, get extremely tight. And I, I don't think anybody really wants that. I'm sure stockholders would not really want a story about liability management, which is what he's turning it into. Well, it's always a fascinating story. Um, and I love, love kind of talking about this company. Dana Hull, thank you. Thank you. Technology reporter at Bloomberg News. Check out her stuff on Twitter at Dana Hull and also at Bloomberg.com. Joel Levington, thank you as well. Senior credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Dana on the phone in San Francisco. Shares of Tesla right now just down about 6.6%, down almost $20 a share at $281.74 a share. This is Bloomberg Radio. She said, you don't understand what I said. I said, no, 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 you're wrong. All right, let's find out what she has to say. Uh, technically, she looks at the markets. Kathy Boyle back with us, president, founder at Chapin Hill Advisors in our Bloomberg 1130 studio right here in New York City. Welcome back. Great to be here, Carol. So what do you find interesting right now in the marketplace? So, you know, what's interesting is these major swings that we've been having, um, right? And uh, people are still kind of apathetic. We found clients very, very nervous in, in middle of February. And one client's wife, actually, the wife wanted to just sell everything. 
you know. So we're still seeing um, some level of nervousness with some of the clients that are facing retirement coming closer, and especially if they have a fair amount of money, right, and very skeptical about the market. Um, she happens to absolutely hate Trump, so that sort of colors her view. You know, she thinks that we're going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. Um, I had another client who wanted to sell everything. And put in the put in a vault, basically. So trying to convince some people to stay in it has been uh, somewhat challenging. Did you convince that person to stay in? Uh, yes, we we decided to rearrange things a little bit, take down some of the equity exposure. Um, How at, much did you take it down? Well, based on the they have long short, and so the real oh, okay. equity exposure was only twenty eight percent, but that was still too much. So we took mm. it down to about twenty, and we added some gold, and we added uh, some short term treasuries. Interesting. So no new money coming in necessarily because people are nervous or what? Um, no, I mean, well, you're always seeing, you know, people are never happy, right? In, 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 the, in the investment world, there's always shoulda, coulda, woulda, right? And yeah. so that's why there's a lot of turnover within advisors, you know, greed and fear rule, right? And, you know, when the market's going up, everybody wants to participate. When it goes down, everybody wants to, oh, I should have got out. I knew I should have gotten out. So, you know, very short term uh, uh, memories. Well, are we in a correction phase in your view? Are we headed for a bear market? You know, it's hard to say at this point. You know, we thought we would have been in a bear market by now, right? Um, valuations are fairly pricey. Uh, bonds are risky, and that's another thing that's interesting. Retailer, retail investors have been buying bonds with both fists hmm. through ETFs and mutual funds. So huge flow went in uh, through April of this of this year, and 107 billion over the last year went into ETFs. Well liquidations on stocks. Um, now, ETFs and mutual funds do not protect your principal if you're in fixed income. And if rates go up, now, yeah, if yeah, they just go up a little bit or they go up gradually, they can manage the risk. But if, if rates really do ratchet up, you don't make money in bonds. You lose money. You don't make money back again until rates come down, which could be a very long period of time. And that's what's kind of interesting. We've been saying, okay, but rates are still low on a historical basis. It doesn't matter. If the trend line and the uh, frequency or the speed at which things start to move up, that's where you get an impact, certainly, on the fixed income side. Yes. And so traditionally, if you're worried about stocks and you want a safe haven, you would go to bonds, right. right? And that's the challenge that we have right now is that fixed income is not safe. You know, And with rates rising up, I mean, mortgage rates have moved up probably about a half a point, and that's made a dent in uh, in home mortgages and cash flow. So you know, we just recently did an event where we had Forecast Your Future, and I had a banker on and a CPA talking about the tax changes. And then we talked about what happens if you're home equity line goes up a half a point. How much of a difference does that make? And if you're a business owner and have outstanding line of credit, right. how much does that change things? And then at the same time, what if your profit margins are squeezed? So these are the things that we worry about. So we tell everybody, I'm a glass half full girl in real life, in my life, you know, but I'm, I'm paid to be a glass half empty in your life. You know, so we watch out for things, you know, and so I'm really concerned about a lot of investors throwing money wholesale into ETFs and mutual funds with fixed income because there's no protection of their principal. Kind of interesting is that why you also then, for the person who was nervous and wanted to reduce their uh, equity allocation, it wasn't like, obviously, more fixed income. It was gold. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I think gold is probably resting right in here. It's up from 1100 to 1300 It went up earlier today when you know rates went down. We have inflation creeping into the economy, um, and uh, gold acts as a safety protection mechanism. So you don't want to own gold stocks. I mean, you can own gold stocks, right, but right, now right. you're owning equity. You're talking about so, the actual commodity. Right. So we try to own either IAU or GLD. Those are both ETFs that actually own the underlying bullion. So that's sort of a safe haven and something that's a little out of favor. It's down from 1900, you know, a couple of years ago. Yeah. You know, so I think that over time gold will um, uh, trend up. Um, where, 
Hmm. So what is the economic market business backdrops? Mm -hmm. They're not terrible, though. Well, it depends on who you talk to, right? Um, because I see a lot of small business owners. I have breakfast clubs where I right. bring local people together. I also have something called a circle of influence that we sell for $22 a month. It's a membership inside of my community to foster business direction. You would think that I'm asking for a gazillion dollars on some of these things. Yeah, We sell sponsorships for not that much um, money where you get huge exposure to your target client. And we are just, you know... Just it feels like I am selling the Taj Mahal sometimes, you know, with trying to get people. So I find a lot of people very worried about money, um, overextended in general. I mean, you look at retail stores and, you know, Amazon is winning and the retail stores are going down. Volume is going down. Right. So, uh, but still the bulk of stuff is sold at stores. It is. But you know what? Really interesting. I was reading something on ThreadUp. I have a new vintage startup company that I'm helping get going. They're going to yeah. be an online vintage. So resale has increased Thread up has had 70% of new buyers buy resale. So resale is growing at 11 point something percent, uh, 18% versus outlet malls, 11%. Right. Well, that doesn't surprise me. I think people are, uh, I'm okay that this has been pre-owned. It used to be vintage and it used to be a very small sect would get into it. But now, um, you know, whether it's Poshnet or something else, there's so many apps Mm -hmm. where you yourself can be the seller and it's pretty easy and people will buy anything. They really will. They really will. We have some. I love Facebook tag sales. You know, I bought a spider plant yesterday for $35. Where could I get this gorgeous spider plant? You know? What so, does it cost to ship something like that? <laughs> oh, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> oh. No, I bought it on Facebook. I just went, you know, it, oh. Facebook has this new thing called Marketplace, which actually you can put in your zip code and put in how many miles you want to drive ah. and then put in things that you're looking for. So it's a fabulous tool. So it's hot, though. And there's I have there's one Chappaqua Mom Sales has over 7,000 members. That's wild. So, and, all right. So, so Investors are going into gold, but you're buying spider plants. I'm buying spider plants, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, fun to chat with you. Good nice to, to have be you here. back. Kathy Boyle. She's president and founder at Chapin Hill Advisors uh, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You can check her out on Twitter at Chapin Hill ADV. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Markets. We've got another check on today's trading session, about an hour to go, and we are seeing stocks. Well, now it's kind of little changes, slightly higher on the Dow, but a little bit lower on both the S&P and the NASDAQ. This is Bloomberg Radio. Ah, uh, yeah. When things come tumbling down, uh, when it comes to cybersecurity, it's not a good thing. I got to tell you, this story caught my attention as I read in this morning. Listen to this: cyber attacks are the biggest risk to the global economy. We've heard this from uh, various executives, too. That seems to be front and center when it comes to their concerns. Our Anna Ragorana is a senior analyst of software and IT services at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio right here in New York. So, Anurag, tell us about this report. And you said before we got started, listen, this isn't new. We've been talking about this. But it is really important, and it could be really detrimental to growth going forward globally. Yeah, I mean... uh I think the biggest issue is there's not a whole lot uh, people can do about it at this time. No matter how much money you spend to try to protect your internal networks, 
it can be exposed to a lot of the malware and the viruses because they are growing at such a fast pace. And every day there is a new variant that comes in and people are dumb enough to click on these. We call it whack-a-mole, right? Just as soon as you kind of knock out something, something else pops up. That's just going to be the way it is. It is absolutely. And what has happened in the last one and a half, two years is the growing popularity of Bitcoin and you know other cryptocurrencies has made it so much easier for the bad guys to go out and you know, let's say, lock your computer up, ask for money, mm. and not be even traced by you know by the by the uh, by the authorities, and that just encourages more bad behavior. So, where does something like I think about the use of artificial intelligence in everything and anything, and we talk constantly about how AI can kind of learn from itself or teach itself things, so it gets smarter and smarter. What about using AI when it comes to cybersecurity? You know, we think that is the only way to protect against these large cyber attacks. You have self-learning systems, autonomous systems that can self patch, clean up, figure out what's happening and prevent the attack as it's happening and figure out uh, signatures of newer attacks that can come in. Um, that's the only way to do it. It's very, it, it's nearly impossible for a human or even a set of humans to do this. Why isn't it being done already? It's very hard. It's something that's very new, I would say, in just, uh, you know, I, this is something that hasn't really caught on. Um, companies are working towards sa- such self-learning systems. Um, you know, Oracle's one of the first companies that just launched a database that is uh, called the Autonomous Database that patches itself, upgrades itself without the uh, need of a database administrator. And that's really something we, we think that that kind of updating and patching will have to go through the entire software industry, not just in databases. Well, and what you're saying is if you're using AI, I mean, every piece of software, right, has to have its own AI tool? Or how does that work? What would happen is you would be able to look at past attacks and figure out a pattern and when the new one comes in which is absolutely new variant and you don't really have a a precedence for that the system will be able to figure out through some characteristics whether it's sending some information out network traffic and be able to stop it um, something that the old uh, antivirus or software systems cannot do at this point. Um, fascinating, fascinating. Um, is, is Oracle the only one that's kind of doing this? Or I'm assuming that there are others. Um, no, Oracle's doing it only for their database package. But yeah. what I'm talking about is systems at a much larger scale. Right. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, whether all, actually I would say all the security software companies are building more machine learning capabilities into their core software. Um, we are just at the beginning of this movement. I think it will take a few years for this to really mature. There was a Bloomberg Business Week story a few weeks back, and I think it talked about specifically artificial intelligence and how the world is competing for AI professionals. And it just sounds like we need more and more of them. Is that kind of holding back some of the companies from developing this? That is holding back, uh, I would say, you know, either it's an AI or cloud, there is a massive shortage of, uh, you know, these kinds of people. And you just can't uh, grow them. I mean, it takes several years to build a data scientist. It's uh, you have to be a math uh, graduate, really high, you know, uh, statistics and all that. So, I mean, it's it's a it's it's something that I think we will have to grapple with for a very long period of time. As as the world seems to move increasingly um, on an individual and corporate basis to the cloud, is that mu- more secure? Is that a better way? We think it's a far more secure system than most internal IT departments, largely because it's homogeneous. These companies spend a lot more money on R&D and security than an individual company can, and they have far better ways to protect their data than you would say, you know, something that has been homegrown for the last 10, 15 years, because in homegrown systems, you're taking systems from disaggregated technology vendors and stitching them together. 
I, I am also curious about, I think about our audience, Anurag, and just in terms of investors, you know, wondering kind of where, what's the, what's the next growth area? I mean, are there, you mentioned Oracle, but, you know, they're working for a specific uh, database product. Are there companies specifically that are just going to be key when it comes to cybersecurity going forward, especially when you talk about the use of AI? First and foremost, it would be the large cloud companies. You would see a lot more migration of internal IT um, workloads to the cloud. So that's one place to be. Second, security products and services. So the entire security software industry, I think you would see them growing nicely because of that. Um, I think the uh, IDC estimate is growing at 8 to 10% a year or something in that range. Um, you know, companies like Cisco have been benefiting from that. Uh, IBM has seen a rapid increase in their security spending um, driven by some of these encryption technologies, GDPR, and just, you know, cybersecurity in general. Interesting. What do you hope people take away from this in terms of, I'm thinking about our audience? It is fairly an important topic, and we think one of the most important topics to focus on. Yeah. Uh, people don't talk about it enough because it's become a normal norm of life <laughs> till we hit a particular incident that could you know, put us you know, really in bad shape. Right. And then we're like, okay, how do we fix this? Anurag Rana, Senior Analyst of Software and IT Services at Bloomberg Intelligence in our New York studio. You gotta give me, cause I can get the best All right, let's get uh, to Bloomberg.com as Dave Wilson. He's got his chart of the day. I'm trying to make the connection between the song and the chart. Room to move, room to boom, ah. room to do something. That's how uh, Credit Suisse's Andrew Garthwaite is looking at technology. I mean, he came out with a report yesterday basically saying IT's okay. At least that was the headline. Uh, he cited a number of reasons for that. He looked at uh, all these uh, tech companies' cash, which means they're a bit defensive. You know, because of that, uh, the industry's growth prospects, the valuation of the shares, a couple of other things. The one I focused on, though, is investment in technology, uh, mainly by companies. And what he decided to use as his sort of barometer is uh, technology investment as a percentage of overall capital spending and whatnot once you take out uh, homes, in other words, uh, non-residential investment. And when you run the numbers, you find out that uh, over the past 20 years, things have kind of plateaued. I mean, technology uh, investment really kind of stepped up in the decades before then. But looking back to the late 90s or so, you've seen that on average, uh, equipment, software, those kinds of things account for about 30 percent of all uh, investment. And if you look at the first quarter of this year, the most recent numbers out of the uh, Labor Department, you, know, you see that you're actually at just above 28%. So it's not like you know there are a whole lot of uh, users of technology that are going out and spending big time on the latest and greatest. So you know his thinking is that there's room for an expansion in terms of investment, and that the companies that provide the products and the services stand to benefit from that. So they're in a relatively good position. It's not like everybody's kind of bought all the uh, software and computers and whatnot that they need. Right. Uh, and we've, we've kind of talked about this. People have held back in terms of capital expenditures. And so this, this, this is a way of looking at that. Right. You know, specifically as it pertains to technology, you mm -hmm. know, where is the money going to go once you do get some kind of an increase in spending? That's really what he's focusing on. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net.
That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. All right. Much appreciated, Dave Wilson. Let's get to another story out on the Bloomberg today. And this has to be with uh, drug makers kind of dealing out a dose of doubt about their responsibilities when it comes to the opioid epidemic. And so kind of pushing back on uh, anteing up when it comes to money for a solution. Let's get that story. Let's head to Wilmington, Delaware. Jeff Feely is Delaware Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News. So, Jeff, what exactly are we talking about? Well, there's uh, two sets of talks going on trying to settle the uh, opioid uh, crisis. Uh, The first set of talks involves uh, suits filed by cities and counties. That's uh, being handled in Cleveland by a federal judge. There's another set of talks uh, sponsored by uh, state attorneys general that are trying to resolve cases filed by the states uh, seeking to recoup tax money spent uh, on the fallout from opioid addiction. Uh, Both talks are stalled at this point, and not surprisingly, the stall is money. The uh, companies want to have their defenses tested in court before they'll start talking about putting up billions of dollars to fund a solution for the crisis. Is there anything from the tobacco playbook and how that settlement came to be and the pursuit of tobacco companies about what they knew and how detrimental cigarettes were? Is there any... How similar is it to what we saw with that? I covered a little bit of the tobacco settlement, uh, but I wasn't that deeply involved. Mm. But this is pretty common for any big mass tort case. I mean, it's really rare when companies agree, like in the Volkswagen settlement over the uh, diesel scandal, they agreed very quickly to put up a healthy chunk of money to settle the cases. The the number that's going to have to have to come up here is going to dwarf that by many times over. So yeah. the companies are you know rightly going to you know bargain back and forth and wait to see how their defenses fare before they even get serious about dollar one. Right. I mean, they basically want to see how, you know how things start to go right before they say you know if if it's not going well they're going to be like let's pay up and let's get out of this right uh, but if yeah, are, yeah, yeah their argument is that you know hey look there are other people involved here yeah the do- this is a government regulated product uh, you can only get by prescription from a licensed doctor and only get filled by a licensed pharmacist we don't have how can we be held liable for people misusing that you know government regulated product you know somebody's going to ha- a judge a jury is going to have to, you know, decide that issue and other defenses before they get serious about money. But you just take a look at what the Ohio Attorney General, they're just suing to cover some of the estimated $8 billion that that state spends annually over the opioid crisis. That's one state, one incident. So depending on how this goes, it could ultimately be billions of dollars we're talking about that the drug industry has to pay up. Well, you know, in the tobacco instance, it was hundreds of billions of dollars. I don't think there are many people who think that these companies have the resources that the tobacco companies had at their demand. Uh, We're talking, you know, if if it's $100 billion, that that would be a great settlement here. All right. Well, we will stay tuned for this one. Hey, Jeff, thanks for your time. Jeff Feely, he is uh, Delaware Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News on the phone from Wilmington, Delaware. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
Yes, indeed, everybody. It is time for the drive to the close. Ross Gerber, President and CEO at Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management, is with us from Santa Monica, California. Hey, nice to have you back with us. And I got to kick it off uh, with Tesla. We know you're a fan. We know you invest in the company. And we know you're waiting for your Model 3. Have you gotten it yet? Um, no, I should be getting it in the next, I'm hoping, two weeks. But I've never really wanted something so bad, actually. It, <laughs> I'm really excited for it. And it reminds me of iPhone 1 when it came out. And, and same thing, couldn't wait to get our hands on this thing and test it and really put it through our own tests. And, and Tesla just reminds me so much of Apple about a decade ago in so many ways. Well, okay. Make the comparison. Was Apple losing as much money as Tesla was? Or Tesla is? Well, yeah. You know, actually, when Steve Jobs took over at Apple, they were in serious trouble. And, you know, the company was in losing money and, and in trouble. And that's why they brought Jobs back. And, and he was a very controversial figure, just like Musk. I mean, people hated Steve Jobs. You know, it, mm. even the movie they made about Steve Jobs was like a horrible insult to his legacy, because people hated him so much. It, just like Elon us because there's just a general unhappiness to some of the greatest innovators of our time. You know, I always say they killed Galileo, too. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to live with these people, right. these geniuses, good and bad, you know. And and, Te- and Tesla's going to change the world in so many ways, and, and, and a lot of innovators say that, but Tesla's actually doing it. All right, but before I ask you about this crazy conference call that everybody's talking about with Elon <laughs> yeah. Musk, let me ask you, though, did Galileo have competition, though, facing him front and center. I had a conversation earlier with uh, uh, part of our Bloomberg Intelligence uh, team. They look at uh, Joel Levington. He, he's looking at the debt and the and the cash burn and the credit picture of mm. Tesla, and it doesn't look great. But the point is, you know, Tesla had a lead advantage for a while, right? That he was out front and center with these really well-done electric vehicles, right? And kind of pushing right. the auto sector to play catch-up. Well, I got to tell you, Ross, I've been reading a ton of stories on the Bloomberg, particularly about the European car makers that they are ready to play catch-up and ready wait, to put wait, out their offerings. You're talking about the same European car makers who spent the last five years with deceptive sales practice with diesel engines. You're talking about the same people who've been polluting with fake emissions tests that are some of which are being arrested and thrown in jail. I mean, these are the people you're talking about you think are really committed to an electric future. See, this is the falsity that I believe. I believe that the oil industry wants nothing to do with the Teslas and all these companies changing over to EV. Trust me, they want nothing to do with it. And these car companies are a part of that industry, and they really have no intention. Look at what they're doing with the EPA right now. They're lobbying to get rid of emission standards to sell more SUVs and more gas-guzzling trucks. So I think it's, it's, it's disingenuous to even think that they're even committed to this. So, you now, they're only- so, so Ross, you don't think, listen, I don't disagree with you that the, the oil machine that's out there, that's a pretty powerful one, and everybody who plays oh, yeah. into it and that infrastructure, it's hard to unwind it. Having said that, if electric vehicles are where people want to ultimately go, you don't think those automakers are going to be putting putting offerings out there front and center? Not a case of whether they want to do it, but maybe because they have to, because maybe well, that's I, a- think, I think they... Yeah. They have 
have made their their semi commitment to that with their versions of the EV with you know thirty mile range and so on and so forth. You know, and and they really you know haven't really tried that hard in my mind to you know the quality that could be there. But when you look at the battery technology that Tesla has and the Gigafactory, you know that's a moat that is very hard to get around that Tesla has because their battery technology is like leaps and bounds ahead of any other competitors. So we don't actually think a competitor has a battery pack that can even con- come close to competing with Tesla at this point. So, you know, this is a huge advantage, the Gigafactory yeah. that Tesla has, and being able to output a large amount of batteries that are super amazing technology. So between that and the brain of the car, and that's really the genius behind Tesla. I mean, we've learned very clearly that they're very good at technology. It's a technology company. They're very good at batteries, and they're really not a great you know, car maker, really, you know? Yeah. Like, they didn't think like, oh, we need to be a car maker, you know, and that was like Elon's mistake, you know, um, is he tackled the really difficult things and then sort of assumed the easy things were easier than they really were. But let me ask you, Ross, I mean, you're a smart guy, you're making investments, you're okay with this company burning through another billion dollars last quarter, you're okay with this, you think that the financials, the business is going to change dramatically soon? Well, let's be real. Okay, a capital expenditure to build a factory isn't like burning through cash. Okay, like Airbnb is burning through cash. You know, Spotify is burning through cash. Nothing that they're doing is a physical asset. You know, so Mm -hmm. I think there's a big difference when you're building a factory and you're building a line to make cars. Those assets exist and they depreciate over time on your balance sheet. So they actually only burned about $350 million in cash from operations, and they spent about $750 million on capital expenditures. And, and that is part of growing the business to be a scale business. Now, if you want to scale slowly, like actually my company, I'm much more conservative. Yeah. So we don't burn cash here, mostly because I don't have VCs. I don't want VCs. You know, right. and we self-fund internally. We could grow faster if we took on debt and or you know were more aggressive. That's not my personality. Elon's different, though. He is put. He sees the vision of where he wants to be in 2020 right. or 2025, so, and he's building the company for that, just like Jeff Bezos. So, you know, keep in mind, I thought Jeff Bezos was a nutcase 20 years ago, and he was building a bunch of books, you know, delivery companies. Right, you know right. what I mean? And, oh, and you got to see the bigger picture. I just got about 15 seconds. you got to be quick. Did you buy more Tesla shares on the dip? Yeah, we buy Tesla every time it goes down. We, we you know, we do yeah. get new capital in every day, so you know we do have that advantage right. uh, of capital. But we love the opportunity. Got to run. Good luck on getting the Model Three. Ross Gerber, President and Chief Executive Officer, Gerber Kawasaki, on the phone from Santa Monica, California. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.